eighth grade and Marissa in the sixth grade. So if you do that math, you can see that I have two middle schoolers at home right now. Um, the scripture passage today comes from the ninth chapter of John, verses 1 through 17. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and he said to me, go to Salome and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But the others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christina. Well, hello, my name is Steve McConnell, and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Palms. If I've not yet had a chance to meet you, or if this is your first time, we're so glad that you're with us today. And we have uh, started just this past week uh, taking a look at this theme of uh, my cup overflows and wondering about what does it mean to live the overflow life. Uh, the psalmist talks about my cup runneth over, and and does that mean that you have to have a lot of things in order for your cup to run over? Or does it mean that you simply have to be in tune with perhaps what God is seeking to do with your life, wherever you are in your life, whether you feel like you're in a life of scarcity or a life of abundance, is it still possible for you to live an overflowing life in the midst of your own particular chapter? So. Uh, to that end, uh, we listened to this great story uh, in John 9 about the man born blind, and so we're going to wonder together about what that might mean to us as we think about uh, overflowing for the sake of the world. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray.
Lord, thanks for this chance to uh, wonder and ponder uh, this great story about your healing. And we pray, Lord, that you will put us in touch with our own need for healing uh, so that in our healing we may become those people of the overflow life. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes it is uh, difficult to, or inconvenient, to see things up close. Sometimes it's difficult or inconvenient to see things up close. Miroslav Volf, the Yale theologian and native of the old Yugoslavia, tells a story of adopting their son, Nathaniel. They had been put in contact with a pregnant, unwed, soon-to-be mother who had who wanted to give up her child for adoption, and arrangements were made, and about three months later, the phone call came that the little boy had entered the world, and the Vols couldn't sleep the night uh, prior to their preparation for their drive to the hospital to bring home their adopted son. And on the way to the hospital to pick up their adopted son, they stopped for a donut on the way, and leaving the donut shop parking lot, the excited father turned the wrong way on a one-way street right in front of a police officer. The lights on the officer's car began flashing, so the couple pulled over just minutes away from the hospital, just minutes away from receiving their newborn child, eager to explain this to the officer and used to the Yugoslavian's uh, custom that when stopped, you got out of the car, you were obligated to get out of the car. The professor stopped, got out of the car, only to hear the officer yell, get back in the car. But you don't understand, officer, I just, I just want to tell you, get back in the car which the professor did. License and registration. And from there, the air from the balloon of adoption slowly and then finally escaped when they got handed a ticket and a stern warning from the officer, next time, pay attention. Professor Wolf does not blame the officer. After all, it was he was the one who made the mistake. The officer was just doing his job. He may have gotten on, off, may have gotten out of bed on the wrong side. But the encounter was a jolting reminder that two human beings can be this close and yet be so far. Sometimes it is difficult or inconvenient to see the other person's world. Now, medically speaking, we all, know, we all know this to be the case. If you're over the age of 40, you understand that the older you get, the more difficult it is to see things up close. It's the rare person over the age of 50 who doesn't have, who hasn't had to invest in a pair of readers or cheaters, as they are sometimes called. The older you get, the more difficult it is to see things up close. There's a medical term for this. It's called presbyopia. I'm not kidding you. That's what it's called. It's called presbyopia. You can Google it. I prefer you not do that right now. Presbyopia, presby, the Greek word for elder or old man, and opia, the Greek word for eyes, put them together and you get presbyopia, old man's eyes. Now, the increasing inability to see things up close 
It may be the only eye disorder that we commonly bring to the story this morning about the man born blind. It's this long story in John 9, and we only read the start of it. Jesus comes across a man born blind, and he chooses in the moment to heal this man of his blindness. And he does it in a rather unique way. He mixes his saliva with the dust of the earth, the two basic elements of life, right, dust and water, and tells the man, puts it on the man's eyes, and then tells the man to go worship in a nearby public pool, and mysteriously and miraculously, the man is able to see. Then something very strange happens. The crowd and the religious leaders can't quite see what has just taken place. They can't quite see up close enough to understand what has just taken place. They are trying their best to try to explain this whole thing away, even to suggest not that something right has happened, but maybe that something wrong has happened, that maybe the seeing man is an imposter, or maybe that Jesus broke the laws on the Sabbath. Anything that would keep them from seeing up close what really has taken Taken place. A blind man has seen. And so, as the story ironically unfolds, a blind one ends up seeing, and the seeing ones end up going blind. It was just too difficult for them, too inconvenient to see things that close. And it may be John, the gospel writer's way of telling us that while Jesus most certainly exhibited the power to physically heal the physically blind, that maybe the greater concern he had, maybe the more common concern he has, was the spiritual healing of the spiritually blind. Remember the story of good King David who finally arrives at the pinnacle of Israelite society. He's this high king up in his high palace, but being king up in the high palace gets you pretty close, pretty far away from the people. And before you know it, they don't really appear to be people anymore. And, and that's when the king looks down and sees Bathsheba, and he's far enough away to see just a beautiful woman, but far enough away to not see that he, she is a hus another man's wife. And so they have their affair, and she conceives, and now the king is far enough away to see Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, not as a comrade in arms, but no, as a foil. And before we know it, Uriah is dead as a part of a cover-up, and the king still can't quite see what he's doing. And then Nathan tells him a story about, stealing, about a man stealing a rich man's a rich man stealing a poor man's lamb, and now the king can see what's going on in the story, and he's incensed, but he still can't see that he's the man. And Nathan says, look real close, king. Look real close. You're the guy. Sometimes it is difficult or inconvenient or painful to see things up close. Because isn't it true we presbyopians, or soon-to-be presbyopians, that the real concern that Jesus might have with us is not how much we might need these little things, but how much we might need to deal with our own spiritual blindness, the increasing inability or the increasing indifference to see things up close. Because the truth is, it can get easier and easier to step further and further back and see the world in these rather large and incomplete categories. And, well, those people fit there, and those people fit there, and this issue's all about this, and that issue's all about that. And the further I get away from it, oh, the clearer it becomes. 
And the two minutes it took for me to read about it in the paper or the two minutes it took for me to hear about it on the news, oh, that's sufficient for me to understand what's really going on, and it affords me the chance to pronounce these rather broad judgments about these rather broad groupings of people, and before I know it, the guy who turned the wrong way is just another dope who's not paying attention. It can, we can get this close and not really see what we're seeing. Makes me think of my first trip to Honduras years ago. Five years before I went to Honduras, I could not locate Honduras on a map except to say that it was probably somewhere in Central America. Honduras back then was for me just one of those struggling Latin American mismanaged countries that was really poor and isn't it a shame they can't quite figure it out and, and maybe just maybe they're getting what they deserve. But then the Global Partners Committee in the church I last served caught a vision for Honduras and they began traveling down there to western Honduras. And they did it several times before I went and then finally I went and I got face to face not with Honduras, I got face to face with Hondurans. And all of a sudden they turned out to be human beings old folk and little children, rich, poor, good, bad. It wasn't a hallmark moment, no. The closer you get, the more complicated it got. But they were real, they were dust and water and spirit, and they had hurts and hopes, and they had each these stories that lasted longer than two minutes. Can you imagine that? And maybe, I've made a dozen trips down there since, and I still can't quite get out of my mind this little seven-year-old girl named Maria, who I met on my first trip, who laughed just like my seven-year-old laughed, and who cried just like my little seven-year-old cried, and who dreamed just like my little seven-year-old dreamed. And she didn't fit into any of these big, big categories I was walking around with. I hate that. I hate it when they don't fit into my categories. And yet what I like, when I'm able to see by grace, able to see up close, is that this Maria turns on a valve inside my soul. And I start wondering what I can do for Maria. What can I do for Maria? And when I start wondering about what I can do for Maria, all of a sudden the scarcity of my life turns into abundance. Not because of me, but because of Maria, my cup begins to overflow. It's the kind of thing that happens when we put on our little spiritual readers and see up close. A valve gets turned and our cup runs over. It makes me think of a man in the church in which I grew up. I will call his name Jim. Jim sent his oldest son to fight in the Vietnam War, praying that his boy would come home alive, but he didn't. Instead, they held a funeral with military honors, and Jim received from the honor guard the sacred folded flag. And then in 1975, in his effort to bring healing to the nation, President Gerald Ford instituted the first amnesty for those who had fled the country to avoid the draft. This incensed Jim. His boy went and died, 
those boys ran away and lived. So Jim did the only thing he thought to do. He took the sacred flag that draped his son's casket, put it in a box, and sent it back to the White House. If that's what you think of my son's sacrifice, he said, well, then you can have your flag back. Such was the view from Washington to Detroit. Then a week later, Jim got a phone call from the White House. The president had received your flag. He wants to meet with you. Would you be as kind to give the president some minutes of your time? Jim was enough of a patriot to believe that when the commander in chief calls, you come. So he went and they ushered him into the blue room and he sat for a couple of minutes and in walked President Gerald R. Ford, and under his arm, the flag of Jim's son. And the president sat, the two fathers talked, the two veterans talked, the two Americans talked. And at the end of it, the president said to Jim, it is because of sons like yours that made my decision so difficult. Allow not my hope to heal the country to diminish in any way the value of your son's sacrifice. On behalf of a grateful country and a grateful president, would you please accept again this flag? And Jim generously and graciously accepted again the flag of his son. And from that point on, there wasn't much President Ford could do that his new brother Jim wouldn't support. The view is a little different the closer you get. So the story is told of a time near the first part of the last century when the great concert pianist Ignacy John Paderewski was invited by a couple of students at Stanford University to give a concert on their campus. What most didn't know it was that it was a plot on the part of these students to raise enough money for themselves to pay their tuition, which they couldn't afford. So the great Paderewski agreed to come for a fee of $2,000. He came and performed a wonderful concert, and when the concert was over, the two students showed up backstage and with forlorn faces informed the great pianist that, he, that they had raised only $1,600 in ticket sales. They were $400 short and hadn't even paid the expenses. They handed Paderewski a $1,600 check and asked if it was all possible to give him an IOU for the 400 and they would work to earn the money and send it back to him when he arrived back in Poland. Paderewski thought for a moment and then in front of the students took the $1,600 check and tore it in two and said, I'm sorry you didn't raise the money, boys, but I'll tell you what, you take the 1600 pay your expenses, and keep the rest. Years later, long after Paderewski had returned to his native Poland, World War I broke out, and in its aftermath, much of Europe had been laid waste, and Paderewski by this time had been elected prime minister of Poland and was preparing himself to intervene with the United States to ask if they would assist the Polish and European countrymen in their desperate plight. But prior to his trip, Herbert Hoover, the president then, made the decision to open up the storehouses of the U.S. and to ship food to Poland and to the rest of Europe. Paderewski made the trip to the U.S. to thank the president for his gracious act of humanitarian aid. What can we ever do to repay you, he asked. Hoover waved the question aside and reminded the great pianist that he was one of the two Stanford students 
whose debt he had forgiven long before. So without my glasses, things get pretty fuzzy the closer I get. And every once, and every ounce in my body wants to gain clarity by moving further and further back. But the further and further back I go, people seem less human. And the less human they get, the less human I get. The less human they get, the less generous I get. And I wonder if that isn't why the good old Lord came down long ago, stepped out of his great big palace, and showed up in a dirty old stable in a one-horse town, and ended up walking the dusty trails and stopping by the blind and the poor and the lepers and the forgotten, stopped and kneeled down and looked real, real close. And after he looked real, real close, stretched out his arms real, real wide, nailed them to a beam to keep them that wide, and said, now that I've seen you, this is how much I love you. It's the kind of thing that happens when you allow yourself to get real close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to humble yourself, to be with us, to walk with us, and to stop before us, and to look us in the eye, and to see the hurt, and the pain, and the worry, and the anxiety, and to see those places where we need to be healed. You love us enough to pay attention to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you will help us to find in our own souls the time and the energy it takes to stop and to look and to see and to find in each human being that comes our way, whether they live a million miles away or live next door, to see in them their yearning to be healed, their yearning to be loved, their yearning to know that there is one who will walk alongside of them. Allow our cups to overflow, all for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.